this chapter this morning. So we'll just do a little bit of recap to help catch you up. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to pull that out. Paul has been uh, in this book that he has written. Um, when Paul wrote this book, he was actually in Corinth. And it was written to a group of Christians who were residing in Rome. Paul did not start that church personally, uh, but he was wanting to go through Rome. And on his way to Spain, he wanted to take the gospel across that known continent. And so as Paul uh, introduces this book, as we looked in the introduction of it in verses um, 1 through 17, we said that this whole book hinges around two verses. And really, Paul spends the rest of the book of Romans just unpacking these two verses, and it's Romans 1, 16 and 17, which are the key verses of this book. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is to be revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Notice that it's from God, but it's by faith from the first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so um, Paul, as he walks us through the gospel, he says, listen, here's how the gospel can change your life. Here's how the gospel can help you in everyday life. And this is how the gospel is going to help you after you leave this life. And so salvation is really in three tenses. There's past, present, and future. I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. And that's the way the, the scripture describes it. I have been saved. I've been justified, which means in God's eyes, it's just as though I've never sinned. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, and uh, I was clothed in his righteousness. So when God looks upon me, I've been saved in Christ, not my works, not by my good deeds, not by anything I could do, but everything that he did on my behalf. And so I am justified before God. I am being saved, which is sanctification, just simply means God is now in the process of conforming you to the image of Christ. That is, he's helping you to think with the mind of Christ and to have the character of Christ, the spirit of the living God living in and through you so that you can then live the life of Jesus. That is, we live a life of love and we live a life of grace and mercy, uh, but we're also mindful of the other attributes of God. And then God not only takes care of us in this lifetime, but also when we leave this world. And so I will be saved. That is, when this spirit leaves this body, it will enter into the presence of God. And one day God will resurrect my body, make it new, bring it into, into the my presence of my spirit, and God will then glorify me. That is, he will have completed his whole process of salvation that is all wrapped up in the gospel. So Paul, in these first three chapters, is trying to get us to see that, look, uh, before we can understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news of the condition of humanity. And so that's what he does in these first three chapters, getting us to chapter three, where he says, listen, the conclusion is nobody is righteous. No, not one. Now, there's, nobody can stand in a right relationship with God on the basis of their, what they've done or, or of themselves, all right? And all have sinned, fallen short of God's glory. Doesn't matter how good you may have been, you're not good enough because God demands perfection and none of us is going to reach perfection, not on this side of the world. And then he, he says that the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal death. Had he stopped there, we would be done, right? We would just walk away and thinking, you know, I'm condemned. Uh, I have no hope. I have no future. Life is just like miserable. No, but he says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the essence of the gospel that radically changes our lives. Now, when we, uh, uh, do you have the... Uh, outline up there, uh, Caleb. That... So as an overview of Romans, Paul is dealing in these first three chapters with the issue of sin. And then in chapter three and verse 21 through 520, when he goes to salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, just what I mean, God is ruler over all. And then service, how this affects our everyday life in serving the Lord and how we serve him. And then he has a conclusion. I just want you to see how this section fits into the overall theme of the book. Now, in chapter 1 and verse 18, we hit a snag in the road because Paul then launches after he talks about the, the gospel. He says, now, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. And so now we're introduced to the concept of the wrath of God. 
and there's a lot of external pressure outside the church and inside the church to minimize the wrath of God or to reduce it or to diminish it. And that people get uncomfortable when they think about God's wrath. And we talk about God's wrath comes in two ways, passive and active. And so he's talking about God's passive wrath. He just gives you over to what it is you really want in life, even though he knows it's not going to be for your benefit, right? So um, people say the way we get this pressure on us is what, what is it that people talk about God the most? Uh, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm not going to come out and say, you know, the wrath of God's hanging over you. But I will talk about the love of God, right? And that is truthful. The love of God. I mean, God loves you. He loves you incredibly. He loves you with a love that is unconditional. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus into the world. So what's the most well-known verse of the Bible that most people know? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So if God loved us, so much that he gave Jesus for us, then that means that Jesus came incarnate, God in the flesh came to do something on behalf of us. And he says, he came to rescue us, what? From perishing, from God's wrath. So you have the love of God and the wrath of God in the most famous verse in all the Bible. And that's what the gospel is about, is about the cross of Christ, where the love of God and the wrath of God collided and God himself clothed himself in human flesh and died on a cross in our place, dying a death we could not die, living a life we could not live so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. And it is there the love of God was displayed, the wrath of God, so that you and I, through a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, not Jesus plus something else, Jesus alone by faith, that we can bypass God's wrath upon our, our life and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and have all of our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven and cleansed. And uh, not, just, not just forgiven, but cleansed. Cleansed. That is, God is just wiping away. He's, he's wiping the slate clean. He's saying, I'm giving you a brand new start, a brand new life. And now I'm going to help you overcome those things that are pulling you down and tearing down your life, the thought processes and the, and the, and the emotions that need healed and the traumas that you've experienced. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you through this life and I'm going to bring healing in your soul and in your spirit. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit so he will be your power source, your teacher, your guide to help you through this process. And one day when you step out of that human body, you will step into my presence and I've prepared a place for you. That's the essence of the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about. So the question is, is that true? Is that really what the Bible is, is teaching us and people, people want to know? Um, and so as a Christian, part of your calling, when people are, might pick up the book of Romans and they might start reading through it and they, they're like, dude, this, this does not look good. I don't, I don't understand this. I don't... I don't get this. I don't God's wrath and God's judgment. I mean, it's just so like, oh, in your face. And, and I mean, Paul just like jumps out of the gate, like in your face. Here's God's wrath. Here's God's judgment. And they're thinking, I don't know how to make sense of this. And so what the Bible says that you and I have to be prepared to give people the reason for the hope that is within us. We have to help them see the context of the bad news so that we can engage them in the greatest news ever. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, love and wrath came together in the essence of Jesus. And so what Paul is going to do in this passage, he's going to help us to understand the glorious news of the gospel. But before he can do that, he has to acknowledge the bad news. So Paul has been addressing four different groups of people. We've talked about this the first group was the rebellious group in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. He says, these are the people who are just like, you know what? Um, I don't know if there's a God or not. Don't really know. Don't really care because it really doesn't have an effect on my life. I really don't want to have any control of my life. Um, it's just eat, drink, for, because tomorrow we die. And uh, doesn't really, I don't really, I'm not concerned about that. So you, you live by the philosophy of, I'm going to do what I want to do. Not what I ought to do, probably, but what I want to do. I'm going to allow my life to be driven by my passions, my, my impulses, rather than by truth. 
So that's kind of the reality. And he says, listen, when people start traveling down that highway, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing the fruit of that in our own in our own country and even around the world. Then he moves to the respectable because the respectable person steps up and says, well, uh, you know, I may not, I'm not rebellious, but, and I may not be perfect, uh, but I'm better than so-and-so. And so they start comparing themselves with other people. And we always use ourselves as the standard of comparison, right? So as I give you an example, if you're driving down the highway, if somebody is driving slower than you, then they're an idiot and they need to get out of your way. If somebody's driving faster than you, then they're a menace to society. They're going to kill somebody because you are the standard by which everybody should be driving, right? Whatever mile per hour you're driving, right? Amen. I, said, I know you guys and myself. Uh, so, um, yeah. So we... Uh, <laughs> We, we think that, you know, that somehow there's, there's this grand scale out there and, and, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm doing good stuff and I'm trying to do all the right things. I, I have a moral compass and I'm voting for the right candidate and I'm using the right hashtag and I'm fighting oppression and social justice. I mean, after all, God, what more can you expect from me? All right, so I'm doing the best I can. That's the respectable person. And, and Paul says, well... Now, let's dive a little bit deeper in that. And he also showed, just as the rebellious person, you also are in need of the gospel of Jesus because nobody measures up to God's standards, God's perfection. And now he's going to deal with the third group, and that is the, the religious group. Uh, do you know that you can be religious and lost, that you can be religious and not have an authentic relationship with Jesus? You can join a church, you can get baptized, you can take communion, you can join a small group, you can do all those things, but not have a true, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And so even Jesus warned that the wheat and the tares will grow up together in the same church, and there will come the time of the harvest, and Jesus will separate the false believers from the true believers. And this is the group that Paul is addressing. Don't think because you have religion that you have a relationship with your creator, because it may not be. And so the religious also gets oftentimes lumped in with the respectable because if you're religious, you probably feel pretty respectable. So he is, he's going to, to deal with the issue of Judaism and the Jewish people, but, but it's broader than that. It's, it's those of us who, you know, come to church. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you went to Christian camp and um, maybe you, you grew up in a Christian home. Uh, so all of these things that, you know, we, we would term ourselves as, yes, I am a religious person. So Paul is going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to this because there's been a lot of damage done by those who buy into this line of thinking that if I buy into a certain form of religious ritual that it will get me, to, get me into a relationship with God or get me close to God and, you know, just throw open the door of heaven and God's going to say, welcome on in. Now, a lot of people say, I believe in God very generic. Um, lot, most Americans, in fact, every, every you know, poll that's ever been done, uh, do you believe in God? There's only less than 3% of Americans are atheists who do not believe that God exists. Another small percentage are agnostic who believe that God, yes, God exists, but he doesn't really engage in his creation. He kind of created us, wound up the world, and sitting back and letting it kind of wind down on its own. Uh, those are the agnostics. God is real, but he's, he's not personal. Um, then there are those who are, are the religious, right? So yes, I believe in God. I, you know, I, I think there's a God out there that exists, but they really don't understand how God uh, interacts and engages in their life. I, I can't tell you how many bedsides I have sat at in the hospital because a family member calls me up and says, hey, my dad or my mom or my uncle or whoever it is, you know, they don't have long to live. Would you go and talk to them? Which is AKA, will you go share the gospel with them? Because I'm not going to. So yeah, I, I, don't, I don't mind doing that. And I will sit down and I will engage in conversation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, this, this conversation. Uh, I say, you know, um, your family members are really concerned about you and, and they're concerned about your spiritual life. And uh, preacher, hold it right there. Um, God and I are good. We're fine. We, we, we've got a deal. It's okay. I don't need to hear, hear you, you say anything else, right? So they got to deal with God. Um, there's one uh, family who called me. The, the father was a member here many, many years ago, long before I came here. And um, they asked me to go, go visit um, 
his wife and his um, daughter and son were here also. And so I, I did. I went and visited his wife. And again, um, her husband was Catholic. And she, um, she uh, went in, started the conversation, and we were talking. And, and again, she says, I asked her, I said, you know, you don't, you know, she's stage four cancer. She's got less probably in a couple of weeks. She's already in hospice care and about to go to palliative care. And we get engaged in a conversation about her spiritual life. And her after, you know, after this, you leave this world, and, and she said, well, you know, I, Pastor, I believe in God. I said, I know you do, but it, it takes more than that. And, and God gave me the opportunity to lead her to faith in Christ. And I didn't tell the family that until the day of the funeral. Because on the day of the funeral, I, I preached the message on heaven And I said to them, I want you to know that your mother, your wife, has crossed into the the presence of God, and I'm sure she wants you to be there with her, and here's how you you get there. You share the gospel. So Paul comes along, he says, listen, I don't want you to get caught in this religious trap of just thinking because you believe in God general, um, that, that that is the key into his presence when you leave this world. So there are four traps he deals with. Number one is this belief not becoming. Belief not becoming. Verse 17. Now, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Right? So he's writing to Jewish believers who are saying, well, you know, uh, we got the law. And uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I got, this, I got this crazy relationship with God. And they're like, you know, we, we're there, but for, for the Jew, it was more because of heritage than it was personal, personal relationship. And so um, belief not becoming is, means that, okay, I believe God's, God exists, but I'm not really becoming like him, right? Like I, I can say I believe in God and live for 40 years, but nothing in my life changes, nothing I believe in God, and I, I believe God's out there, and I believe he's a good God, and I, I believe he's gone and prepared a good place for good people, so for goodness sakes, I better be good. So then the question all to me is, well, how good is good enough? Well, who answers that? Because so, so the Jewish people believe that they were in with God because of their heritage. Hey, we've got the law, and uh, we've got Father Abraham, and uh, Paul's going to use Abraham as an example in chapter 4 of Romans. And so we're, we're good, but nothing was really changing. Um, and so James, the book of James comes along as, because Paul says, listen, we are saved by faith, um, by grace through faith in Jesus, not that of ourselves, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. But then James comes along in his book and says, hey, you can show me your belief, but if your belief doesn't have deeds attached to it, you ain't, you're not saved. Your faith is dead. It's null, it's void, it's useless. You can believe a lot of things, but if, those, if that faith, that belief is not bringing about change, authentic change in your life, then it's probably not doing you any good, is what James would say. And so they're not contradicting each other. James is not saying that we are saved by works. He's saying that those who are saved will produce works, right? And then Paul said the same things because in, after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, but God has created you unto what? Good works. So uh, here, here's the problem with religion is that the religious group says, well, says, uh, you know, we've all, Paul said, we're all, we've all sinned. We've fallen short. I mean, if we say we had, we're following Jesus, uh, that's great, wonderful, but doesn't mean we're perfect because we won't be perfect. But it's very popular in our day and time, to confess other people's sins, but not your own. Have you seen that in our society? Uh, We have whole protests and movements telling the world what others have done. And if you're going to protest the sin of others, you need to begin by protesting yourself and coming clean with your own stuff. Because see, this is what the religious Jews, especially the leaders in Jesus' day and time, would not do. They were great at pointing out everybody else's sin and saying, well, we believe this, guy, this person might get in, this person's not because on the basis of what we see and observe. But they were never owned up to their own issues until Jesus started pointing them out and they were furious. 
and they would pick up stones to stone him. And ultimately, they crucified him because they didn't want Jesus messing with their stuff inside. Jesus would say things like, wow, you guys go on the corner and jingle your little bells and start praying so that everybody will see you and think, oh, what a religious man. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you've received all the honor and reward you're going to get, the praise of people. But God ain't praising that. You did it for show. See, I, I can be self-righteous and, and, uh, and say, well, you know, and, and have placards and plaster the sins of others on those placards and protest against those who commit those sins, but never look at my own or never let God look at my own. I never prayed Psalm 139, 23, where David prayed and said, God, examine my heart. I, I want you to examine my heart. I want you to see what is deceitful and wicked within me. I want you to un unveil my anxious thoughts and my anxious ways. I want to get my heart straightened out. But this is not what, this is not what religious, people, religious people do. It's all about, well... We're, we're great on pointing out the sins of others, but rarely on our own. We don't, we don't talk about the fact that we, we, don't, we don't tithe. We have a potty mouth. We're sleeping with our girlfriend. We kick the dog. We cheat on our taxes. We don't, we don't deal with those issues, right? We live in a day where everyone does evil, but we like to talk about their evil, but not our, but not our own. And so Paul says, we, we've given you the law. Now, you know what the law did for people? Point out everything you do wrong. I can't live up to that. I mean, in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, there's 613 laws that were given. God didn't give the laws so the people could keep them and earn their way into heaven because he knew nobody could keep them. And that was the purpose of the law, to show you how far short of God's glory you actually fall. But what was the ultimate purpose of the law? Well, Jesus reveals that to us in his encounter. I mean, some of you grew up in church. You grew up in a Christian family. You grew up in a Christian school. You went to Christian camps. And the more you know, the more you're responsible for. And Paul had already talked about this. He says, listen, you've been given the law. You've been given the word of God. Some of you grew up being taught in Sunday school. And, you know, you went to Christian camps, Christian schools. And you, have, you know a lot about the Bible. And the more that you know, the more God holds you responsible for doing. He says, don't, James, don't just be a hearer of the word. You need to be a doer of the word. So what is the doing that God is really interested in? Well, there are many things, but there is one main thing. Because sometimes we treat the Bible like we do our classes at school. Do you, how many of you remember at school and you're sitting in a class in high school and you're thinking to yourself, I ain't never going to use this. I ain't never going to do this. Well, what's the sense of this? I'm not paying attention. I'm, I'll, I'll just, you know, get my way through and just get a passing grade and move on. And then you get to college, and we call those electives. I, I'm never going to need this. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of make my way through this. And, um, and what we never come to understand is that the Bible is not for information. The Bible is for transformation. I don't care if you have memorized 2,000 verses. If it's not transforming your life, there's a problem. There's a reason. And it might be that you just don't have an authentic relationship with the Lord. You're trying to do things to earn your way into his grace. You're trying to earn your way into his presence. But you've not really been transformed by the renewing of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Because you know a lot of stuff, but you're doing very little about what you know. But when Jesus was asked... What is the heart of the law? And the leaders in his day came to him and said, listen, Jesus, uh, we've got 613 laws. How can we narrow that down to a tweet? Like we can get that out there in 25 characters or less. And so Jesus says, let me show you how to tweet this. Love the Lord your God. What did he say? With all of your heart. What, what is your heart? 
It's your emotional life with your mind, your mental life, your soul, your spiritual life, and your strength, your physical life, and love others as I have loved you. In other words, love, love is a relational word. Love is about relationships. Your relationship with God is sourced in love. And here's what I'm trying to say. You are not biblical unless you are relational. The most religious people are the least relational people oftentimes. And sometimes people, they love to quote verses. And, and if it feels like, you know, uh, sometimes they're quoting things at you and like they're throwing punches at you. Like, what is the first approach that oftentimes people try to make in, in helping people find Christ. Well, let me show you everything you're doing wrong. Let me point out all of your sins. Let me show you everything you need to change. And without ever first even building a relationship with the person, we just jump out on the street corner. And, you know, I went to the, uh, my wife and I went to the um, zucchini fest. And the minute we walked in the gate, this guy's holding this huge placard and, you know, you're going to hell and all this, your ju God's judgment's coming on you. You're going to hell. He had this big Bible in his hand. He wasn't even looking at people. He just kept looking at the Bible like this self-righteous individual who just now, you think that people are going to come to faith in Christ and repentance because you've just had this big placard pointing out all their faults and failures? Probably not. But this is what religion does. It's, we're, we're, we're great about pointing out uh, the wrongness in others, but uh, we, we do it in a way that, that just pushes people away, and they begin to have a misperception of what God is like. And so, um, like, God is far away, therefore, sometimes we have a misperception, that, you know, God's, God's far away, he's out there, he's distant, and therefore, he's distant in our relationship, or, or God just seems to be so angry and cranky, especially in the Old Testament, and so God must be angry and cranky with me, and, and so, or I get angry and cranky with everybody else, and or, uh, God just judges, he just seems to judge a lot, and so I, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to judge me, and, and those religious people who have a misperception, conception of God, they will use it and abuse it thinking that they are being godly by abusing people because they think that's the way God treats us. But then you read the Bible and God comes along and says, no, no, God loves you and he wants you to love him because he loves you so much and God forgives you and he wants you to forgive yourself and he wants you to forgive others because I've tasted of the grace of God. I extend the grace of God to others. God blesses you so that he can bless others through you. God really is patient with you and so he wants us to be patient with one another and God comes alongside us and he wants to build us up. He doesn't want to tear us down. God is not against us. God is for us and so rather than us coming alongside somebody else and tearing them down, we come along and we build them up in the faith and the admonition of the Lord because this is what God treats us. Let's see, uh, I, I, I've met re religious people, and even as a pastor, they make me feel extremely uncomfortable. It's all about the rules, follow the rules, follow this. And so. Listen, you're not biblical until you are relational. You haven't rightly understood the Bible unless you're becoming a more loving, forgiving person. We open our Bibles to learn. We open our hearts to love. This is what motivates me so much about reaching out to the unbeliever, to reaching out to the drug addict, to reaching out to the alcoholic, to reaching out to those who are on the streets, is because I grew up in that similar environment, and I know what God has done for me and what God wants to do for them and my avenue into their life is not just to go up and judge them and hand them a list of do's and don'ts. It is to love them and build relationships with them, which takes time. And it's usually three steps forward and 10 back and two forward and 18 back. And it's a back and forth thing. And it takes a lot of time and takes a lot of effort. But I'm telling you, it's worth every single, every single moment. The second one he says here is... Um, trap is preaching, not practicing. Verse 18, he picks it up and says, if you know his will and approve of what 
is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And so he's saying, wow, uh, I believe in God, I accept God. And these people are like totally confident. And so a religious spirit is all about telling others what they should be doing, but in reality, we're not doing it ourselves. We're not practicing what we're preaching. That is what the Bible calls hypocrisy. These are the people who say, well, you should not steal. Okay, well, that's true. The Bible does say that. Are you giving generously? Are you living generously? Are you robbing God of his tithe? Are you stealing from work? Politically, we're commanded to do things, um, you know, people command us to do things that, that they will not do, you know, we hear all the time, you need to lower your carbon footprint because of climate issues, and then those who are touting that are the ones who live in, you know, have three mansions, yachts, and 14 cars, and private jets, telling the rest of us how we ought to live to lower our carbon footprint, or those who, you know, touted about wearing masks, wearing masks, but yet they're caught in public places they themselves, who are telling us what to do, are not doing it themselves. This is the, what Paul is saying here. He's batting back and forth, and he's challenging them. He's saying, listen, you are not practicing what you are telling others to do. So here's how I, I, I put it on your outline. Religious people, it, it's always about law for you, grace for me. <laughs> I can sit down all day long and pick you apart, right, in Jesus' name. Uh, about what you're doing wrong and what your faults and your flaws and all these things, but yet you in turn, it's always law for the other person, but it's always grace for you. Well, but Lord, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, thank God I'm not like that and I'm not like you. And, and we all have this religious spirit within us because we, we are the good people and they're the bad people. Now, if we do what we are supposed to do, and we're going to be held accountable in the sight of God, and they do what they're supposed to do, they're going to be held accountable in the sight of God also. But some people, you know, they just, you know, religious, sometimes religious people, they just, they want to be the, they just automatically want to be the leader. They want to be the teachers. This is what Paul says. They just want to come up and say, listen, you're doing it wrong. Here's how you need to do it Right. And they just like jump all over them and say, here's what the Bible says, and you need to do da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you, you don't even know if they're even a follower of Jesus, first of all. And, and even if they are, we just like down the line. And so they just want to be bossy and tell you what to do. And some of you are married to people like that. And these people are very confident. They're self-assured. They're pushy and demanding. And, and uh, here's how it works. Law for you. Grace for me. Okay. Uh, then, the, then the person finally says, okay, well, I've had enough of your law. Let's talk about your life. You know, the Bible says, judge not, least you be judged. I, I, at least I know one verse. <laughs> you can't judge me. You don't know me. So I liken it like this. Um, think about binoculars versus a mirror. So the book of James says that the, that the word of God is like a mirror. What's the purpose of a mirror? So you can look and see what you look like. Like if you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you got this big cyclops, uh, you know, zit right in the middle of your forehead, you're probably going to do something about that. Or uh, if you were at a restaurant and you went into the bathroom and, and looked in the mirror while you're washing your hands and smiling, you got, you know, spinach between your teeth, you're probably going to be doing something about that. And so the Bible is given to us as followers of Jesus as a mirror so that we can look in that mirror and see what is wrong with us. So it's not like uh, law for everybody else, but just grace for me. No, God says, I want to give you grace. I want, I want you to see what's wrong. I want you to see where you're deficient. And I want you to acknowledge that and repent of that and turn to me for that. And I'm going to help you correct that in your life. But religious people, we're like, they like to wear, you know, take binoculars. Like I used to deer hunt many years ago. 
And so I'd be sitting up in a tree stand, and when you have binoculars, one of the things you can do is see objects that are way far off. I mean, they can be way far off, and they look like they're right in front of you, right? You ever use binoculars? Uh, you get that, right? But here's what you can't do with binoculars. You never see yourself. You, you're getting the picture Paul's painting here? We can zero in and we can focus so clearly on everybody else's faults and flaws and failures, but we never see our own until God holds up the mirror and says, now, before you start ramming on everybody else, how about we take a peer into your heart and see what's going on? So he challenges them with these questions. You, you, you railing on people about stealing. Are you stealing? You're railing about people this? You... And so the Bible is not to be a binocular, but first and foremost is to be a mirror. And the point is what Paul is saying is, A, we all need grace. We all need Jesus because he is the dispenser of God's grace. Now, one of us that's perfect, there's not a one of us who's got it all together. There's not a one of us who has not made colossal mistakes. And for us to use binoculars on others and never put the mirror in front of ourselves, that leads to hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrisy in the Bible speaks of a drama or theater back in that day and time when you... You, you played a role in theater, you might play multiple roles. So you go backstage, you take a mask, you come out, you play your role, you go back, change mask, you come out and play another role. And you may play three, four, or five roles in that one single drama or play. And, th and this is what hypocrisy is about. I, uh, it, it, you know, you, you never reveal who you truly are. I'm, you know, I'm with, when I'm with my Christian friends, it's uh, praise the Lord, uh, God is good, but when I'm with my unbelieving friends, it's like, let's get drunk into a stupor so we, we can't even remember tonight, or when I go out with my Christian friends, uh, I, I dress one way, but when I go out to the clubs, I, I dress another way, and the clothes are much smaller and much more revealing, and so these are the things that we, we struggle with and we deal with as followers of Christ, and what Paul is saying is, what, your, your character is what you are in the dark, when nobody else can see. Is it the same? Is your character the same with no matter who you're with, where you are, as it is when you're somewhere else? And so that's what the religious trap is. I, I, I will preach, but I will not practice. It's law for you and, and always grace for me. Number three, rules, not relationship. And so he says in verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty hard hitting right there. He's saying is because you guys are so hypocritical in your lives, that people are blaspheming God. They, they want nothing to do with him because they've had everything to do with you. And it's just like a big turnoff. And... He's talking initially that this religious, legalistic, rule-based, punitive kind of lifestyle, which really hurts relationships in the church and hurts families, it's repulsive to, to unbelievers. So when you're dealing with non-Christians, whether it be family members or neighbors or friends, always remember this. You need to connect before you start to correct anything. Right? You need to have a love connection kind of relationship before you jump in trying to correct. What, see, religious people, they just, because it's law for you and grace for them, because we're better than you, it's all about give them the law, give them the law, show them everything they've done wrong, just like shove that in their face. You're a sinner. God doesn't love you. His wrath is on you. And so that's going to love them to Jesus, right? That's going to bring them to faith. If you don't know them and they don't know you, you have to build some kind of trust factor here, some kind of trust relationship. And I, if they just think you're trying to control them and punish them, they're just going to like back away. Listen, sometimes what, what, are, what are other things that religious people are really good at? Arguing with people, right? You see a sin, let me argue with you about that about how bad you are and about how you fall, far you fall short of God's glory. And so we may win the argument, 
but we lose the person. You might win the argument about their sin, but you've lost them and the connection with them that would enable you to share the gospel. And one of the things we do, and this is on your outline, is to fill in a blank. We demand perfection, but we don't encourage progress. We demand perfection out of people, we don't encourage progress. Let me ask you a question. Is our Heavenly Father perfect? Yes, He is. Are you? No, we're not. Are you going to be? Someday. When you leave this world and you enter into heaven, you will be. But until then, it's not, you've heard me say this many times, it's not about reaching perfection in this life, it's about making progress and celebrating with those who are making progress. Amen? And this is what, this is, this is what I, I need to do, or you know, if you think, oh, God's perfect, this is what I need to be, I need to be perfect, uh, no, you, you can't. And so Jesus comes along and says, I'm perfect. I love this. And, and I'm going to walk alongside of you in this life. And I'm going to help you. When you stumble, I'll pick you up. When you fall, I'll dust you off. When you take a step, I'm going to celebrate. How many of you know when your children and grandchildren take their first steps? What are the things we do? Man, we are hooping and hollering. This is the way God is with us. He understands our imperfection. He understands our faults and our failures and our flaws. He doesn't rub it in our face. He doesn't hold it over us. He said, listen, I took that sin debt and I cast it as far as the east is from the west. I plunged it in the sea of forgetfulness to remember it no more. And as I have forgiven you, you are to forgive others. Don't make them wallow in it. Don't make them pay you back whatever it is you think they owe you because I've already made that payment. Grace for you and grace for them. And if they respond in that grace, man, let's celebrate that we have taken a step. I've taken a step. I've offloaded my unforgiveness and my bitterness and the root of rage within me. And I've exercised forgiveness. And when God sees that, he says, man, we're going to celebrate that. You just took a, you took a step in your life. I mean, I know that wasn't easy. I know that it was hard and it was difficult, but it was the right thing to do. And so God just, man, he sees us. as he's a, he's a father to us. He is a parental father, and we celebrate that. And God, his father, celebrates his children taking next steps. And, and so we celebrate with others who, you know, when you're trying to share your faith with somebody, you, you want to celebrate when they take their next step. If I ask somebody, hey, how about we just read the Bible together? And they say, yeah, okay, I'd like to do that. That's a win. For me, that's a win. Uh, maybe it's like, hey, uh, how about coming to our men's group at my house on December 5th? And they show up. I'm going to be asking my neighbor to come to that, that, that men's uh, group. Uh, he's, he's not saved. His wife's not saved. They just had a baby. And guess what? Man, they are, they are open and um, been talking with him for a long, long time. And we're going to invite him to that event. Why? Because if he takes that next step, I'm going to celebrate with that. See, this, this is how we do. We just, we're like God. We just celebrate because watch, listen, rules without relationship always results in rebellion. Rules without relationship. If you're religious and you just give people the rules, well, if you want to be right with God, you got to do this, this, and this, and stop doing this, this, and this, and you don't have to give this, this, and this, and not this, this, and this, and we give them this list of rules, and we haven't even built a relationship with them, and it always results in rebellion it's that way with your kids. You know, when I was in school, they put a, they put a fence around the, the, the school, the playground, right? Well, what's the purpose of the fence? The purpose of the fence was for our protection. So people just couldn't wander onto the school ground and abduct a child and, and children feel more secure and therefore they'll want, they, they took away a fence just as an experiment. Kids just huddled against the back of the building for fear of going out too far. And so you put up a fence and they wander out there. It is, it is for, um, 
It is for their protection. But oftentimes when we put fences up, people look at it as not protection, but as restricting me. You're restricting me. And so on our playground, man, there was a basketball course. There was a merry-go-round. This is back in the day. You could have really cool stuff. And uh, we had a merry-go-round. And one time my sister was on the merry-go-round. I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. And she's wanting off. And I won't let her off. And so finally she jumps off and breaks her leg. And, and so I had to explain to my mom why I did that. And we had, we had monkey bars. We actually had monkey bars so you could fall. And listen, we had no mulch. It was asphalt. That's what our playground was made of, asphalt. And you had that 50-foot high slide that was made of metal that burned your skin off because it was 150 degrees when you went down it. And we didn't think that was fast enough, so we'd sit on wax paper and we'd, boom, you know, off the end and cross the asphalt. Your legs are all, you know, burned up, bruised. You, you know, that was, that was fun, right? So we... They start taking that stuff away. Why are you taking that stuff away? That's cool stuff. And so what religious people do is they think that, that, God's, that God's fence are, it's way too broad, way too broad. And God's saying, listen, I put this fence up for your protection, not to restrict you. I want you to have tons of fun inside that fence. I want you to have an amazing time. I'm putting this up for your protection. But religious people say, no, that's too restricted. That, that's not protective enough. So what we need to do is we need to set up extra fences. And this is the way the Pharisees operated. Like, look, the law says do not do this. We're going to keep you from even getting there. We're going to set up 15 more fences. You got to kill the mic through and... We- <laughs> To keep you from disobeying that law. And sometimes this is the way we are with our kids. It's rule after rule after rule after rule trying to protect them from something out here. And we've added 15 other rules. And they look at that as restrictive. We look at it as protective. And so rules without that relationship ends in rebellion. Because what they do when they turn 18 and they get out of your home and they start college, they just go absolutely wild because now they're out of prison in their mind. I'm not saying you don't have rules. I'm just simply saying... When we set boundaries for children, they need to know why they're there, not just what they are. Why are they there? You've got to answer the why question. Why can't I do that? My kids just say it all the time. Why can't I do that? Our youngest daughter was always saying, followed it up with, with, here's why. And her always response was, well, what if I don't? What if I don't? Well, here's the consequence. If what if you don't? So nine times out of ten, she would bounce over those boundaries and Suffer the consequences. Here's number four. We'll wrap this up. I got five minutes. Outward focused versus inward focused. Verse 25, he says, Circumcision has a value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, well, they will will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man who is not a Jew, if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. So notice outwardly versus inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And so just try to condense this down. He's talking about outward, not inward. Physical versus spiritual, visible versus invisible. And I know that you just could not wait to get to church today because Greg was going to talk about circumcision. Circumcision was first done with Abraham. And what Paul is simply saying, there's no ritual thing you can do that's going to make you right with God. And so Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, it says that God credited Abraham with with righteousness because his his belief in God, God had given him the promise again about the promised son and his descendants. And Abraham believed God, even though he has no visible, uh, tangible evidence of it yet, God credited him with righteousness. Genesis 17, Abraham, God introduces circumcision as a sign, an outward sign and seal of the covenant relationship God was establishing between himself 
and Abraham and his descendants. Now, we, we, we're not, you know, we, we, and so in, in Jesus' day and time, here's what the Jews would say, especially in, in the church, is that when a person got, was saved, a Gentile who's not circumcised and wanted to be a part of the, the Christian church was made up primarily of Jews who were circumcised, they said, hey, uh-uh, is Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation? And so there's a whole council about that. And the council came back and said, no, 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 that is not right. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So there's no ritual that you can do that's going to make you and put you into a right relationship with God. Now, we don't use rituals of circumcision, but there are things that religious people talk about. For example, uh, what denomination are you in? When I've gone out and I've done a lot of door-to-door evangelism before, and you, you, know, you start sharing with them, and, and, and you ask them a question about their spiritual life, and you know, do, do, you, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And almost always the response is, I'm Baptist, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Catholic. And so they put the denomination ahead of Jesus. Like rather than saying, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I'm Baptist, I'm, as though Having the right denomination is going to give you a ticket into paradise. This is what Paul is talking about. There's those who say, well, um, if, you want to, if you want to distinguish between a first class and a second class uh, Christian, man, if you're going to move from second class to first class, you've got to speak in tongues. Now, tongues will do it for you. Uh, once you've done that, then you've moved into a whole new realm, and, and that makes you now... I'm not downing tongues. I, I, the Bible teaches about tongues. I don't have time to go into all that. But I'm just simply saying some look at that as like you have graduated from second-class citizenship to first-class citizenship. And that's the ritual they put their hope and expectation on that they're actually, in fact, followers of Jesus. Or here's one. Have you been baptized? Now, let's get to the fine print of baptism, all right? Were you baptized as a baby or an adult? Were you immersed or were you sprinkled? Did the pastor have a squirt gun or did he put you under for three days and three nights, right? Were you baptized by the pastor or a random believer? Because you know Philip couldn't baptize the Ethiopian eunuch because that wasn't scriptural, right? Uh, were you baptized in the name of Jesus or were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that makes a difference. And if, if that's not you, did, you didn't do it the right way. You did it the wrong way because you didn't do it our way. It's not good, right? So the Church of Christ believes, that, and this is in their doctrinal statement, if you're not baptized in the Church of Christ by a Church of Christ pastor, you're not making it to heaven. That's, just, that's, that's their belief. So that, that's another issue. Um, what about have you, um, what, oh, here's, what translation of the Bible do you use? Is it King James only? Because you know, if it's anything but King James only, uh, that's probably coming out of the Satanic Bible. And the reason I know that is because I watched this guy on YouTube who was a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, he, he just hammered away how King James only, uh, what, what translation does your pastor use? And, and, and by the way, do you have a real Bible or is your Bible one of those things on your cell phone, those electronic fake Bibles right there next to your social media, you know, Jesus and social media right there together? And this is crazy, the things we get in arguments over. You got to get rid of your iPhone and get yourself a good old school, dead tree, cow giving its life Bible that's a bound in leather. That's it. And by the way, what size Bible are you carrying? I want to see a big life application Bible with 15 streamers hanging out of it because that shows you're really spiritual and you're in with God. Here's another big one. I'm shut up. Homeschool versus public school. It's a major argument in the Christian realm. So here's what he closes with. And let's just look at the last verse. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Whose praise? The person who gets this, the person who really understands this and has not based their relationship on God with rituals, regulations, and rules. Because anything that gets put in front of your relationship with God, let me tell you, it's just a matter of time 
before coming to church. It's boring. It's miserable. Time in God's words, like eating a bale of hay, eating oatmeal with nothing on it. I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's just horrible. But I want to tell you, what Paul is driving at here is this. Listen, religion doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Okay? And when Jesus gets hold of your heart, and there's actual transformation that begins. Listen, you, I, I've shared, you, you don't have to beg people to come to church. They want to be there. They, they can't, I mean, they can't wait. They're spending time with the Lord all week, and they can't wait to get with a group of believers and to worship the Lord and praise him and get in his word and get back out on the field, the mission field that God's put us on and begin sharing Jesus with people and helping people and loving people. And and it's not a duty to them. It's it's not a responsibility to them. It is a ministry. It is something that that God uses just to just fill you up in your heart to overflowing. I'm not saying that there aren't times that you don't get discouraged. I'm not saying there aren't times that you don't get down and defeated, but Those who are walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins refilling that empty well so that you're not drawing out of an empty well. You're drawing out a well that is filled every day with living water through the Lord Jesus Christ as you're walking with him. And then you're not looking for the praise of man. You're not looking for the praise of people. You're looking for the praise of God and God alone. So here's how I put it on your outline. It's that when, when my religion replaces obedience, man, God leaves. But when my religion reflects obedience, God blesses. And the bottom line is this, and what Paul is saying, whether you are rebellious, respectable, or religious, everyone needs Christ. Everyone. So let's bow our heads together. And I pray for you here this morning, and I don't, I don't know what your spiritual position is, whether you're a true believer or not. That's between you and the Lord. But I do know this. If you, if, you, if you do not know, if you are not sure that your hope and faith and trust is put in Jesus and Jesus alone for the payment of your sin, then you're not saved. It's never Jesus plus anything. It's never Jesus plus me, Jesus plus a ritual, Jesus plus church membership. It's Jesus alone. And if you are not certain that you were to draw your last breath today, that you were to enter into the presence of Christ, listen, Paul's whole message is you are far more sinful than you could ever dream possible. But God loves you far more than you could ever comprehend. And he demonstrated that love for you, that while you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, Christ died for you. So that through him, you might experience the God himself removing your shame, your guilt, all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt, all the stuff you have done, past, present, future. And he will take your sin certificate and mark it paid in full. He will cleanse you by ceremonially putting you under the blood of Jesus. I know that sounds weird, but it's just, this is God's payment for sin was death. And it's Christ's death by putting your faith and your hope and your trust in him alone, God says, I've cleaned your slate. I'm giving you a brand new start, a brand new life, and I'm going to dwell you with my Holy Spirit to help you navigate whatever time you have here on planet Earth. Let's start stripping away those thought processes that are holding you captive and bound to sinful habits and things that you know that are destroying your life and you know that you've tried to set yourself free before but you've not been able to do it. You've tried to change your life before but it's never lasted for a very long time. God wants to work on you not from the outside in but from the inside out through the person of the Holy Spirit, God's power source. Jesus says, man, this is, this is the gift I'm offering you. And you must receive it personally by faith and putting your hope and your trust in me and me alone.
that's the desire of your heart, you can just pray right now and just ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, to surrender yourself to be Savior and Lord, the CEO of your life. And he says that's exactly what he will do. If you have any questions, I'll I'll be here at the front as we conclude our song service, um, our worship time together. I'd love to talk to you about this. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but I can tell you this. If your hope is in anything else but Jesus, you're on the wrong path that leads you to the wrong destination. It is Christ and Christ alone, by faith alone, in the gospel of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.